Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Thank you. While we're turning there, I, I want to start with this illustration. You know, there's a lot of rabbit holes on the internet that you can kind of get lost in. I, I found myself lost in a, a rabbit hole this week, one that I didn't even know. You see, I'm kind of one of those guys that will follow the GPS wherever it leads me. Some of you are like me. Others of you are really irritated by people like me. It's, it's, I was an early adopter of the GPS before it was on everybody's phone, you know, the old Garmin systems that you would just put in your car. Because I'm, I'm actually pretty bad with directions. And so it was so wonderful to be able to just plug in an address and just follow the command. So I don't know how to get anywhere without my phone now, because I, I use that on my phone. But I fell down this rabbit hole on the internet this week of, of a whole category of content called GPS mishaps. And uh, if I'm not careful, I'm going to probably land on that someday. But, but let me read to you some of the stories that I found. There was a German octogenarian who ignored a closed for construction sign in favor of his GPS advice. He drove his Mercedes past the warning signs through numerous barricades straight into a pile of sand. There was a New Jersey father who was with his wife and two kids when they came to a T intersection. You picture this, he only had two choices, left and right, but the GPS said straight. So he drove up onto the curb, went 100 more feet and ran right into a house. Two of his family members had to be taken to the hospital. They were okay. They were okay. There was a truck driver in Spain who was hauling a heavy load of cargo. He was intending to go to Gibraltar, which is, you know, the well-known place in the, the south of Spain. And the GPS told him to go north. Well, what he didn't realize, he had inadvertently typed in Gibraltar Point, which is in rural England. You'd think he might have been suspicious when he saw Welcome to France. And then later he crossed, crossed the English Channel. But he showed up 1,600 miles away from his destination. And I can't think of any of these stories without thinking of this scene. Take a look on the screens. Proceed straight. Well, we're 0 for 6. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club. Other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know? You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwight. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 no, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right. It said take a right. No, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's what, a lake there. I think it knows where it is going. This is the, the lake. machine knows. This is the lake. Stop yelling at me. No, it's Stop not yelling. There's no lake here. Remain calm. I have trained for this. OK. Exit the window. Here we go. Make a U-turn, if possible. Look out for Leighton. Michael, are you OK?
man. There's so many funny little things. Did you see how Michael opened the door for the camera guy? That was so funny. <laughs> the machine knows where it's going. <clears throat> that is me sometimes. Now, that's a fun way to start a message, but there's actually a serious message underneath it. The point of the text that you just heard read that we're going to be studying this morning is about putting our confidence in the wrong thing. It's about misplaced confidence. And what Paul is trying to say through these few verses that we're looking at this morning to the Philippians is the machine does not always know where it is going. He was warning them not to put their confidence in the wrong thing. And here's the truth. My instinct, your instinct is actually to put our confidence in the very thing that Paul was warning against. And, and I, I want to show you that this morning. I want to show you why I believe that. And here's why I think this text matters to us is just like for the first century audience, many of us in this room are heading down the wrong path and we don't know it. We're just blindly following instructions, blindly just sort of obeying the commands that are sort of shoved to us. And, and the thing about that is you can be sincerely trying and going the wrong way. And so the Spirit of God, as he is re-speaking this text to us this morning, wants to help us. He wants to redirect us he wants to set us free. So let's get caught up in the context of where we are in the letter of Philippians. Paul is writing from prison. He's writing to his favorite church. You kind of get that idea all throughout the letter. He's, you can just tell his heart for them is just pouring out. Last week, Lloyd finished chapter two, which is you know a few verses about Paul's companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus. I, I love the lesson from Lloyd's message last week. Spiritual growth requires human interaction, not simply doctrinal truth. And so we're kind of turning the page in a sense. We're going from you know chapter two to chapter three this morning. We're halfway through the letter. We're through most of the doctrinal, heavy theological parts. Paul has some very practical things to say. And uh, in fact, the, the way that I want to track through this morning's seven verses is to uh, look at this outline. We'll put it on the screen. This text follows this pretty cleanly. This text is going to give a command in verse 1, a warning in verse 2, a reminder in verse 3, and an example in verse 4. So that's how we'll track straight through the message this morning as we follow our text. A command, a warning, a reminder, and an example. Let's start with the command. The command is right here in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So the word finally indicates the transition. Now, you might think he's starting to wrap up. You know, he's only halfway done. So he's a little bit like the teacher that says, I just have one more point. And then he's like, on eight points later, he's still talking before he, he prays at the end. But Paul is signifying that there's something really important that he's about to say. I mean, it's like the, one of those listen up words, like finally. And then notice the, the brothers. Now, Remember in that context, that didn't just mean male siblings. It was the community of faith. It was the brothers and sisters who are in Christ together. So finally, my, the, the ones that I care for, my, my family in the faith, rejoice in the Lord. There is the command. Let me circle the word rejoice. It literally means have joy. Be glad. Maybe a different way to paraphrase it would be celebrate. 
have fun, have a party. Like, let, let, let's, let's rejoice is what Paul is saying. Now, remember the context he's writing. He's in prison. He's writing from prison. He's writing to a group of people that are being persecuted. They're struggling. There's all kinds of issues that they're having. And yet he's commanding them to rejoice. And that seems a little strange. In fact, I think it seems strange to us whenever we encounter a, an emotion that's connected to a command. I, I don't know. I don't like responding. That someone tells me, "Be happy." So it's like I can't just be happy, you know. If you know what's going on in my life right now, and this stuff's hard, I'm underwater right now, and someone's telling me, "Be happy." I don't, I don't like that. I, I think the reason it seems strange to us that when we hear a, a word like rejoice, it's like an emotion that I'm being commanded to do is we typically think of emotions as things that are governed by our circumstances. So the emotion of joy, you know, in our minds is something that arrives when good circumstances arrive. So it's like, yeah, when, when the check clears, then I'll rejoice. When the job comes through, when I'll rejoice. When the kid turns around and gives his life back to Christ, then I'll rejoice. When the marriage gets better, then I'll rejoice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Paul is stretching our paradigm. He's saying, choose joy, regardless of your circumstances. Choose joy. And he's saying it right now, right now, now. The objection is my circumstances are not joyful right now. I was thinking about this this week and I realized what, what I'm really saying when I say that, what I'm really saying is it's the responsibility of other people and other things around me <laughs> to bring good things into my life so then I can respond with joy. You know, that, that's what we're really saying when we think, when we think of that. The, the people and things around me are not doing their job to bring me joy. So what does Paul do with that objection? It's very subtle. He disengages joy from circumstance. And then he attaches it to something else. In fact, I'd say it more clearly, he attaches it to someone else. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He does not say rejoice in your circumstances. He doesn't say put on a happy face, pretend everything is hunky-dory. He says rejoice in the Lord. He is disconnecting joy from circumstance and he is attaching joy to the Lord. Now, in the Lord is not just a throwaway Christian phrase for Paul. This is identity language. We've talked about this before because Paul loves to use this phrase, in the Lord or in Christ. We hear that all throughout his letters. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are in the Lord. You are. You are rescued. You are redeemed. It's all those beautiful things that Lindsay reminded us of earlier. That's who you are. Circumstances can't touch any of that. They can't touch your identity in the Lord. They can't touch it. So being in the Lord not only means like uh, circumstances can't touch your, your future. They can't touch your identity. Being in the Lord also means you have a relational unity with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. 
But it's like you, you are inextricably connected in a loving relationship with God that you cannot extract yourself from and he will never extract you from. So being in the Lord means there's a relational unity between you and God that permeates everything about you. I like the amplified version, the way they translate these four little words, rejoice in the Lord. You know, amplified goes long on everything, right? That, that's their, their purpose is they're gonna amplify and use multiple words. And, and here's what they say. Delight yourselves in the Lord and continue to rejoice that you are in him, that you are relationally united. You are in communion with Christ. Now, Let's back up and summarize this. And I'm, I'm taking a lot more time on this first point than I will on the other three because this is the key to the text. This is the command, rejoice in the Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. Don't attach joy to external circumstances. Don't be dependent on your circumstances for joy. But he's also not saying produce joy, manufacture joy inside of you. He's actually saying something different. He's saying you are in joy. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. Joy doesn't come upon you from an outside circumstance, but nor is it internally willed from you. Joy is in God and you are in God. This is the logic that Paul is teaching us. And then if you think about what it means from a joy perspective to be in God or to be in Christ, be in the Lord, God is by nature a joyful being. He is continuously joyful. The unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a unity of love and joy that just permeates that relationship. And through faith in the Son, you have been graciously and securely placed into that union. You have been placed into joy. If you have eyes to see that, that is your reality. So, so what Paul is commanding is not put on a happy face. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. See your life from the big picture, which is to say, see it from the true picture and rejoice. You might think of it this way. Rejoicing in the Lord is about helping your outside catch up to your inside. What's really true about you inside. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's interesting that he says this next part, right? These same things is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. What in the world does that mean? Well, he might've had Nehemiah 8.10 on his mind. You know, Paul knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that interesting? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so what I think is going on here is Paul, who, who loves this group of people, he's just calling them brothers, you know, like my family. The best way I can protect you, Paul's saying, is to remind you to rejoice in the Lord. The best way I can keep you safe, even from my prison cell in Rome, is to remind you to rejoice in the Lord because in the Lord is safety, in the Lord is security. When you are confident in your identity in Christ, you are undefeatable. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter eight. You know, who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Can war, can famine, can, you know, all these irritants in our lives, could, could even spiritual danger, could any of this separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus? No, never. 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So what do you have to fear and run away from? You are safe. You are in the Lord. You have a future. That's your safety. That's your security. That's your fortress. Rejoice in the Lord. It is safety for you. It is a safeguard for you. Okay, there's the command. Now we get to the warning, all right? This is, this is where you're going to start to understand sort of this wrong way, misplaced uh, GPS mishap idea. Here's where Paul goes next, Philippians 3, 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, I pondered this text this week, and uh, I had a long time to think about it. And I was thinking hard about it yesterday between, oh, about 2.30 to 5.30 or so, because I was multitasking and watching a big game. And, and, And lo and behold, I saw... I was going to say a word from the Lord, but I can't go that far. But I saw this pop up on the screen of the game. All right, all right, there it is, there it is. And I thought, this is what Paul was talking about. It was a prophecy to college football in 2021, the number one team in the country. Look out for the dogs. Now, some of you don't know this. I went to the University of Georgia. I was in the Red Coat Marching Band. I met my wife, Jody in the Red Coat Marching Band. I'm a huge, passionate fan. Do you know how hard it's been for me to hold back this whole season? We're number one, guys. Come on, come on. Today, I found my moment from the word of God. Watch out for the dogs. And I'm telling you what, if you're a Florida Gator yesterday, you know those are some bad men. Those are some evildoers. Those are the men who mutilate the flesh. Now, I wish I could just move on to the next point and say I taught the word faithfully. (laughs) What, 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 What does it actually mean? Okay, what does it mean? I promise you won't hear any of that nonsense again, at least until we play Alabama. And then we'll see. Or maybe Tennessee. We'll see. We'll see. All right. What in the world is Paul actually talking about? Um, well, you know, many of you know this, that dogs, were, it's kind of like the, the biggest insult without getting profane that you could give somebody in, in that day. I mean, you know, we, we love our dogs today, but if you've ever traveled across the world, you, you've been in a developing country that doesn't have a good sanitation system. The dogs are just like eating the trash. They're like scavengers. They're doing all this stuff. I mean, that would have been the reality that they lived in back then. So they associated dogs with sort of the lowest of the low. And, and Paul is calling a group of people dogs that you would not expect to be called Dogs. There were men, these false teachers that would, I think, literally follow Paul around and, and come in behind him in these church, in these churches he was planting and preach a false gospel. And, and, and we call these individuals Judaizers. Who were the Judaizers? They taught that it wasn't enough just to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You also had to follow the law of Moses. In other words, but before you could really be rescued by Jesus, you had to become Jewish. And the number one thing that they were encouraging or, or, or telling these Gentile believers in Jesus, the number one thing they were saying is, for you to really be a, a true follower of Jesus, you need to be circumcised. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was circumcised. Like Jesus said, I, I've, I've honored the whole law. Don't you want to follow Jesus? Shouldn't you honor that Old Testament law as well? Should you be circumcised? And then from circumcision, let's see what else. Oh yeah, we've got the Sabbath rules and regulations. Don't forget about those. And, 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 and oh yeah, there's some certain things you can eat and certain things you can't eat. And, and before long, you see, they were weighing down these new 
Christian converts with all the stuff they had to do. And, and what Paul is saying is look out for that teaching. Look out for those people. He's using the strongest language he can use. And this mutilate the flesh is a not so subtle reference to circumcision. Don't let them mutilate your flesh, like even in the literal sense. Now, is circumcision so wrong? I'll, I'll take it broader. Is law following wrong? Paul's about to address that in the next verse. He's going to move from the warning, look out for these people that would teach you that you have to do all these external works. Now he's going to give a reminder. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Guys, this is like a theological grenade that that Paul just tossed into the argument. What he's actually saying is the act of circumcision was there to point people to a greater reality which has now been fulfilled through faith in Christ. So we, the brothers and sisters, the family of faith, those who put our trust in Jesus Christ, are the circumcision. Regardless, regardless of the external regardless of whether or not you're keeping all the Mosaic law and doing all those things to look the part. This is, again, identity language. We are the circumcision. Paul's saying to these Jesus people he's writing to, you don't need to get physically marked because you've already been spiritually marked by the Spirit. We are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus because we are in him, and we put no confidence, zero confidence in the flesh. Now, we also have to talk about this word. This this is an important word. It comes up all throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it a lot. It's it's oftentimes misunderstood. It means a couple different things depending on the context that it's used. Sometimes it just means your flesh, like your actual body. Sometimes it it means... um, um, the, the fleshly desires, you know, we, we tend to think that way. It's like, watch out, watch out for your own sinful desires, your fleshly desires, and we tend to associate that with all kinds of things. Paul's not using it either of those ways in this context. Paul, when he says flesh, is meaning good works. That might surprise you. In this context, Paul is referring to all the outward religious things that we might do to think of ourselves as okay with God. The flesh in this context is the stuff that we do or the stuff we refrain from doing because it makes us feel like God should help us because we're good. Paul is saying that is misplaced confidence. You ever been like, living okay and something bad comes into your life and instinctively you just say, God, why? It's not fair. How is it that my neighbor can be living like hell and thriving and and, and I'm trying here? That's a sign that you are living according to the flesh. And, and maybe, maybe that doesn't look like what you thought it looked like. It, it, in this context, it's just putting your trust, putting your confidence in your works and, and what you're doing and the fact that you think God should treat you right because you're a pretty good person. 
or, or you're more good than others. Paul is saying, don't put confidence there. It won't work. It's the wrong way. It's the wrong directions. Ignore it. When it says turn right, be careful. It will lead you down a dead end road. And so next, Paul's going to do something very interesting. He's given the command. He's given the warning. He's given the reminder. We we are the circumcision. Like, you're already there. You're, you're, You're good in Christ. The next thing he's going to do is he's going to give an example. He's going to talk about himself. He, he is the example. He, he's going to say, if you want to know what a disaster that path can turn out to be, that path of putting confidence in your own works, putting confidence in the flesh, look at me. He's about to say, I've been down that dead end road. In fact, I took that dead end road all the way past the barricades, all the way into the pile of sand. I want you to see the way Paul writes it. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's quite a resume. He actually lists seven things right, right here. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Circumcised on the eighth day. The, the eighth day was, was when the law commanded, the law of Moses. So not only was Paul righteous, but his parents were raising him right. Uh, the people of Israel, remember God's chosen people, they, they had great pride in their national identity as the, the, the chosen ones. Uh, for, for good reason. Not only is he of the people of Israel, but from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a special tribe. You know, all the tribes were allotted areas of land and Benjamin got the land where Jerusalem ended up being and the temple ended up being. And the very first king over Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. And guess what his name was, by the way? Saul, which was Paul's name before he came to Christ. So he's identifying with this. And he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think he's kind of starting to repeat himself here. He's just saying, you can't get any more Hebrew than I am. As to the law of Pharisee, Pharisees were the ones that kept the law with the most meticulous attention to detail. They even added extra things to the law. It's called fencing the law so, so that, that they would be so far back from the edge of the cliff that they would never break a single law. They, they would really got into it. And then not just that, but a persecutor of the church. Uh, when he was still called Saul, he was responsible for the death of Christians. And he persecuted and executed Christians with a stone-cold, clear conscience because he sincerely believed he was doing God's work. And then finally, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless, and you know, to us it might feel like well, nobody's blameless, and, and, and Paul would understand that too. But there was a context in that Pharise, Pharisee tradition that if you did the right things and you kept yourself holy, you kept yourself pure, you were blameless before God and therefore worthy of His salvation. Now, where did all of this get him? Why does he Paul go on and on seven different things. Why is he building his resume, so to speak, all because of the verse that follows? Let's look at one more verse this morning. But whatever gain I had, I counted his loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's saying all that stuff amounted to nothing. 
In fact, he's actually saying it amounted to worse than nothing. It, it not only didn't get me where I thought it was supposed to take me, but it, it, it crashed me into the lake. Now he's using an accounting analogy here. And so I don't know a whole lot about accounting, but I, I know enough to, to know this, that, that money that is paid to you is called credit or money that's owed to you is called credit. And money that you owe to someone else or pay to owe to someone else is, is debit. Am I, am I doing okay on this so far, Richard? You know, Richard's got an accounting background. Okay. Now, every transaction is categorized as either credit or debit. And if you properly balance the books, it's all accounted for. Like the, it, the books are supposed to zero out. And so Paul is saying, I used to put all that righteous, religious, good stuff in the credit column on the side of the ledger that was good for me. And now I look back and it actually was a debit. It, it, it actually was negative. It wasn't even neutral. That doesn't seem right. Like lean into the tension with me. That doesn't seem right. I, Maybe the persecuting the church stuff, that was a debit, but come on. Like, Paul memorized the Torah. Paul was, he did all the law. He did it, guys. Better than any of us could do it. And, and you're saying it was a loss? It was wrong? It was on the negative side of the ledger? Why would Paul consider all of that a loss? This is really important. This is really important because up until God intervened in Paul's life, literally stopped him in his tracks. Up until that moment, all of Paul's religious identity and achievements were keeping him from seeing his need. They were actually blinding him to his unrighteousness. And if you never see your need, you will never call out for rescue. So here's what this means. All of Paul's religious identity and achievement were keeping him from Jesus. Keeping him from the Savior. Saul didn't need a Savior. He was good. Now, what happened to Saul that moment that God intervened? Many of you know this story. You remember this story. Jesus blinded him. Literally, like, like, boom, bright light, blindness, okay? And it took days for the blindness to, to go away. Why, why did God blind him? It was as if God was saying, you think you can see, but you cannot. You think you know me, but you do not. You think your outward righteousness has earned credit with me, but I want you to see how it has kept you from me. And, and in that moment, Paul cried out, Lord, who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that had to be one of those moments in, in the moment in Saul's life where it's just like what he thought was up was down and what he thought was down was up. And you can just imagine the disequilibrium and the pain and, and the, the shame. All of it just would, would have been on him. And, but now, fast forward to Paul's prison cell and he's writing this letter to the Philippians and he's thinking back on this moment, whatever gain I had, I count as lost for the sake of Christ. And now he's rejoicing. He moved from an on top of the world religious guy to like lowly in chains, 
persecuted, and now he has joy because he's in the Lord. Because of that encounter with Jesus years earlier, even though it was painful in the moment and humbling in the moment, it changed the course of his life and set him free because God loved Saul enough to show him his blindness. And God loved Saul enough to help him see his need, his bankruptcy. Helped Saul to see he's following the wrong directions. And now Paul is writing, he's saying, don't be like me. Don't follow those wrong directions. Don't be like I did. Don't listen to people that are gonna take you down this wrong path. So I, I wanna apply this to us. And the first thing we have to name, and you know, for some of you guys, it's harder than, than others. For me, this is hard to name this because I grew up as actually a good, like I was good. You know, my, my, my brother... He went through a season of life where it was kind of like the prodigal son. And, and I was that older brother. You know, I was good. I stayed home. I did the right thing. I got the good grades and all these kinds of things. And so for some, some of you are wired like me. It might be especially hard for you to grasp this, but this is what I want you to hear. One of the things we learned from Paul's story is there's more than one way to rebel against grace. You can live like hell and run away from God that way, or you can look really good and you can do a lot of really good things and rebel against grace because you don't think you really, really need it. God had to get Saul to a place where he could see his righteous acts for what they were. Barriers, barricades from understanding his need, his need for rescue, his need for grace. They were things that kept Saul away from Jesus and Jesus loved him enough to say, enough, enough. I want to show you how blind you really are and then I'm going to reopen your eyes to see things new. And look, for some of you, this is your day. I'm going to be that bold. Some of you in the room watching online, this is your day for you to see things new, for you to have your eyes opened up. You, 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 you might have thought your whole life being, being a Christian is, is participating in Christian things, identifying myself with the Christian religion. That's the wrong way. That's following the wrong instructions. That's putting your confidence in, in the flesh. Paul's saying, don't go down that path. What God wants for you this morning is the same thing he wanted for Saul when he encountered him on the road and the same thing later that Paul wanted for the Philippians. He wants you to know Jesus not know some things about Jesus, not do a bunch of good things for Jesus, to know Jesus, to relate to Jesus, to talk to him, to rejoice in him. And so I know, I know there's more than a few people in the room or watching online that you've actually just never had that moment where you, you've consciously shifted your confidence, your trust from your works, your ability, God's judgment of you based on what you've done or haven't done to the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is an invitation for you this morning. And so I'm, I'm gonna put this on the screen. Every week we end with this invitation of joy and I wanna show you what it is this morning. Ask Jesus to open your eyes to your need for him and rescue you from your self-sufficiency. And then... Rejoice in the Lord. And I want to talk just very briefly to, to, to two groups 
because we're not all in the same place. There are those that this morning for the first time, you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm starting to see some things. Maybe it almost feels like it's starting to clear up a little bit. And by the way, that's the spirit of God who's been working in your heart long before you walked into this room this morning. And if you're hearing his voice this morning, I, I just, I, I can't plead with you enough to respond. And, and, and this is it for you. Just ask Jesus to open your eyes, reveal your need for him and, and ask him to rescue you from your self-sufficiency. That's all it takes. Shift your trust, place your trust in Jesus and, and then you'll be able to join us in rejoicing because you will be in the Lord. And, and I wanna talk to one other group of, of people and that people like me, it's like, yeah, I put my confidence in Christ years ago, but the reality is I still keep going over to the flesh side. I, I still, when those hard moments come into my life, when I look up to God and say, man, what gives? I'm trying here. I still sometimes deep down am not sure. Today, am I firmly placing my trust in Jesus Christ? It's not a matter of losing your salvation. It's just a matter of our instinct to follow the wrong directions, to kind of keep going back to that other side. I want to encourage you, if that describes you this morning too, ask Jesus to open your eyes to your need for him and rescue you from your self-sufficiency. You will know the deep presence of Jesus to the degree that you confess your need for him. and then rejoice in the Lord. And that's how I want us to end our service this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're gonna sing a song, a song that we're able to rejoice in our identity of who we are in Christ. We are sons and daughters. Let's bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, thank you for your word that penetrates our hearts. Thank you for this faithful servant, Paul. His passion, his zeal has flowed through his pen. Thank you for preserving those words and then re-speaking them to us by your spirit this morning. I pray for those like on, on both sides of this thing, that those that, that have never actually taken a, a step away from their own stuff and toward trusting Christ. And I pray for those of us who need a reminder again today that it is not about what I do, what I don't do. My confidence is not there. My confidence is in Christ. So help us, even in this next song, Father, help us rejoice in the Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.